Who am I? Where do I fit in? What's my purpose? What's my role in life? As we continue on in the second half of the book of Romans, these are the questions we begin to see answered. We said last time that the whole of this section from chapters 12 to 15 is written about how we respond rightly to all that Paul has told us and all that God has told us in chapters 1 to 11, which he summed up with one word, mercy. How do we respond to God who gave himself as a sacrifice to save us from sin? Well, the answer so far is that we give ourselves to him as a living sacrifice. Our bodies we give no longer to sin, but to his service. God has spiritually renewed our minds so that now we do and approve of his will. And that's a huge game changer, isn't it? It turns everything upside down. We no longer live for ourselves, but we live for him as living sacrifices. And now Paul begins to masterfully apply that to different areas of our lives. How we view ourselves, how we view each other, and how we treat each other. Paul wants us to see that we can no longer go on as we were before. If we are to be living sacrifices, then everything must change. Even, firstly, our view of ourselves. So our first point, a right view of self, humility. Have a look with me again at verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. A renewed mind is a humble mind. That's what John Stott uh, said about this verse uh, many years ago. A renewed mind is a humble mind. And Paul shows us here what the renewed mind thinks like, what the thoughts of the new renewed mind are. The word think in some form or another is used four different ways in this verse. Even that phrase sober judgment is literally sound thinking. This is about how the renewed mind thinks. And the renewed mind thinks humbly. Or as Paul puts it, not uh, think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Pride can be a real problem for us as Christians, thinking too highly of ourselves. I cringe as I think back to my younger days as a Christian. Uh, when I, I thought that I knew it all. You know, I had a good Bible knowledge and uh, what everyone told me was sound theology. And it was. But it didn't make me humble. It made me proud. I remember conversations as a student treating other Christians with contempt, talking down about ministers in town who thought differently about secondary issues. I thought that I knew it all. And often the people that I hung around with thought they knew it all too. And I cringe at it now, not because my theology was wrong, but because my attitude was wrong. Good theology should make us humble, not proud. So if you think that you know it all and you sit in judgment over other genuine believers, sneering at their methods or belittling their cherished beliefs, then however sound your beliefs or your ministry or your theology of ministry you've not really understood the mercy of God 
Because the mercy of God, says Paul, makes us humble. More of this in chapter 14. But pride is a problem for Christians, isn't it? Paul seems to think that this will be one of the big problems that Christians face. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because society tells us actually the problem is the opposite way around. That actually the problem that people have mostly is low self-esteem. So which is it? Is it pride or is it low self-esteem? In general, do we think too little of ourselves or do we think too highly of ourselves? Well, I think both can be true. They do share common traits, if you think about it. One thinks that they're more important than they think they are. I think too too little of myself. The other thinks that they're more important than you think that they are. That's the pride. But both put the focus on self. Both are introspective, looking inwards inside themselves. Both look at themselves in isolation. One thinks that they're always right. The other thinks that they're always wrong. But in both cases, it's their own opinion of themselves that they trust. In both cases, it's all about me and what I say about myself. I get out my measuring stick and I say whether I'm great or I'm rubbish. But what this tells us is that actually we're not to depend on our own biased measuring stick. Literally, we're to depend on the measuring stick of faith. That's the word that he he uses there, or the measure of faith. That's what we're to use to think about ourselves. In the second half of Romans, faith is sometimes used not just as the act of believing, but also what is believed. What Paul is saying then is that we're to think about ourselves in line with the beliefs that God has given us, that he's assigned to us, that he's proportioned to us, if you like. He's the one who gave them to us. So it's not about finding a halfway house between low self-esteem and high self-esteem. It's about believing everything that God tells us about ourselves. That's the sound thinking that he's talking about here. That we are sinners, yet we're also saints. That we're wretched, yet rescued. That we're guilty, yet justified. So it's not that we're half and half, you know, we're not half guilty and half justified, or half wretched and half rescued. We're both. So that Paul can cry out, wretched man that I am, in chapter 7, as a sinner, and Abba Father, in chapter 8, as a son. It's why David could say with one breath in the Psalms, I'm a worm, not a man, in Psalm 22. And then in the next breath, speak as though he's righteous and innocent, in like Psalm 26. We're both. But in all these cases, says Paul, don't trust your own opinion of yourself. Let God tell you who you are. Let the scriptures tell you how you ought to think of yourselves. Let the Lord define how you should think about your life and about you. And it should not lead to pride. It should not lead to a looking down on others, but to humility. 
So when you're feeling like you're better than everyone else, perhaps you could sing to yourself the song that we started with this morning. And can it be? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Died he for me? Who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That's what we need to sing to ourselves and think to ourselves, isn't it, when we're thinking too highly? And when you're feeling like a worm, like David did, we need to sing to ourselves the other song we sang earlier. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. I'm chosen, not forsaken. You are for me, not against me. And both those songs are true, aren't they? Both those truths are true. And we need to hold both together. We're not to think too highly of ourselves, but to think in line with how Scripture tells us about ourselves. So what is the way here that God wants us to think about ourselves specifically? Well, he wants us to think about ourselves as part of a body. A body where we belong to each other. So our second heading, a right view of church, ownership. A right view of church, ownership. Have a look at verses 4 and 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. A humble mind sees themselves as part of a larger body. If we want to think about ourselves rightly, we have to understand ourselves as part of a larger whole. The focus shifts from me to the body. You see, to be in Christ is to be part of his body, the church. And the language here is incredibly strong. It's almost embarrassing. Verse 5, we are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Now you'd expect it to say and individually members of one body, Christ. That's what you're sort of expecting, isn't it? You're one body in Christ and individually members of that one body. But it actually says then you're one body in Christ and you're members of each other. Stop and think about that. You are part of someone else's body. And they are part of yours. Other translations try to get that meaning across. So the NIV has each member belongs to all the others. Or the New Living Translation, we all belong to each other. See, not only do we belong together in the body... We belong to each other in the body. I belong not just to me, and not just to my wife Caroline, but to Stephen Faith, to Mike and Judith, to Shelley, to Penny, to Doug and Laura, to Richard and Sarah, to Lyndon and Margaret, to Kyle and Sarah. I'm not going to list off the whole church, don't worry. But do you see what I'm saying? I belong to you. I'm yours. But that means two things for you. Number one, if I'm yours, then you're responsible for me. What you own, it's your responsibility to take care of, isn't it? 
A big deal is made of the fact that pastors will one day have to give an account for how they've looked after their flock, and that's true. But I think it's equally true that flocks will have to give an account one day of how they've looked after each other. You, in many ways, are responsible for the people around you, virtually, this morning. So it's all our responsibility to make sure that we make it across the finish line in the race of faith. So what are you doing to care for other members of the church, members in the broadest sense? That's the first thing. You're responsible for each other. The second implication of me being yours is that you belong to me too and to all the other people that I didn't mention earlier. You are not your own. Not only do you belong to Christ, you belong to his body. And laying down your life for Christ is often linked in the Bible to laying down your lives for your brothers and sisters in church. Bearing in mind what we saw last week, how would you finish this verse? So 1 John 3.16 By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for you think it would be lay down your life for him. He laid down your life for you, you lay down your life to him. But that's not what it says. It says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Actually, it's for the church, our brothers and sisters. Well, think about what Jesus says to his disciples in Mark 10, Mark ten forty three. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For the Son of Man came not even to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The greatest is to be a slave to others, not belonging to himself, but to others in service to them. Or 1 John 4, 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For who does not love his brothers? Sorry, for he who does not love his brothers, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And we have this commandment from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Do you see there? The way that we show our love to God is to love our brothers and sisters in church. So you belong to me, I belong to you, and we're members of each other. We are to serve and love each other out of love for God. We are to live as living sacrifices by laying down our lives for each other. Serving God by serving one another. Showing our love to God by showing our love to each other. And suddenly verses 1 and 2 get a bit more real, don't they? That we saw last week when he talked about laying down our lives for God. Laying down your life as a sacrifice to God sounds very spiritual, sounds very noble, doesn't it? But laying down our life for that awkward person at church? Laying down our lives for Frank or Dolly? They're not real people. But it's easier, isn't it, when we talk about fake, fake, faceless people, isn't it? We can sort of get that out of the way. It's when we actually start to put faces to that command. 
How are we laying down our lives for Robin, Debbie and Ethan? How are we laying down our lives for Gareth and Becky? How are we laying down our lives for Liz, Carol, Mary, Joy? It's when you start to think of specific people that we realise how far short we fall. We've been in lockdown for just over a year. What have we done? What have you done since lockdown started to help real people with real faces at this real church to live for Jesus? Why not sit this afternoon with a contact list and ask yourself that question? Work through the people in it. Or a better question would be to ask, well, how can I actually help them this week? The wonderful thing is that in our church, I know that there are people who are out there doing these things. But couldn't we do it more? They belong to you. You're responsible for them. You belong to them. How are you helping them live for Jesus? Now, service, of course, can take many forms. As Paul says, a body has many parts, and the different parts have different functions and roles. But all are parts of each other, all belong to each other, and each is responsible for serving the others. In this last section, Paul shows us how we can serve one another, how we should uh, be laying down our lives for one another. So our last point a right view of gifts, service. A right view of gifts, service. Have a look at verses 6 to 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Parts of the body serve the other parts of the body. One commentator puts it this way. The gospel does not produce perpetual spectators, but mobilises hearers to make a difference for others, as God has made a difference for them. We all have different gifts, but what they all have in common is that they're there to be used. They're there to be put into practice. God has wonderfully made us all different, but each has a part as a function in the body. No part is giftless. The Spirit has made sure of that. All of us have a part to play in the body. And all of us are to use the gifts that God has given us so that the body functions properly. He lists off seven gifts here, but there are longer gifts elsewhere in uh, longer lists, sorry, elsewhere in Scripture with different gifts on them. There's no definitive list. It's not like JigCal. Uh, did you have that when you were at school? It's sort of like a compu- early computer-based sort of careers advice. You know, you filled in a questionnaire, and then it had a sort of list of jobs, and depending on what your answers were, it gave you uh, the job. I got museum curator, I think it was, uh, for my job. Uh, because that was one on the list. But this doesn't work like that. The gifts aren't random, as we'll see, but they're not exhaustive. It's not all the gifts that you could have. The idea here is not to limit our gifts and our use of gifts. Sorry, not on the list. It's to encourage us to use our gifts, to broaden our minds even to what gifts we might have. 
Whatever the gifts and whichever ones we have, the emphatic point of this passage is to put them into practice, is to use them. There's no point in having a gift and not using it for the building up of the body. So what are the gifts that he lists here? I'm going to deal with them slightly out of order so we don't get too distracted by some of the tougher ones. So firstly, we see encouraging in verse 8. Encouraging. It's translated here, exhort. But it's that word that we keep meeting again and again. Parakalu, to call alongside of. It's translated appeal in verse 1 of chapter 12. It's to urge, encourage, exhort, challenge, counsel, comfort. We said it was like Paul was acting like an older brother towards the people he was talking to. It's that same idea of encouraging them to keep going. Secondly, we have serving in verse 7. So it could have encouraging, also serving. And that's the word uh, diakonos. It's where we get our word deacon from. It means to minister, to serve. It's the word used in Acts 6 of people who set tables, do the washing up. It's a very practical word. Having said that, Paul uses it of his ministry of the gospel, his service to the church. Probably here, though, it's that gift of helping with the practical runnings of church, the finances, the hall, the tea and coffee, the setting out the chairs. So it could be serving. Thirdly, teaching, second part of verse 7. The word there is just the normal word for teaching. Elders are required to be able to do it in 1 Timothy 3. Yet everyone does it in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. The meaning is, is broader than teaching, uh, sorry, than preaching. Teaching can happen in a variety of contexts, but it involves explaining, expounding the Bible. So it might be teaching is one of your gifts, but then again, everybody is involved in that. Fourthly, leading. The word here literally means those who stand at the front or stand in front. And again, it happens in different contexts. In the church, yes, but also in the family. It's what fathers do, for example, with their households in 1 Timothy 3. But it's also what elders do in churches in 1 Timothy 5. So there's a sort of leadership that can be part of that uh, gifting. Fifthly, caring doing acts of mercy, literally mercying, showing mercy, showing compassion, either in forgiveness, when we've been wronged, or in acts of kindness, which is what we've got down here. Visiting the sick, feeding the hungry, caring for the needs of the saints. That could be a gift that you have. Sixthly, giving, contributing to the church and the needs of the saints. Well, it's just what it sounds like. We just don't often think of that as a spiritual gift, do we? Giving. And then lastly, prophecy. I've left this to last, not because it's not important or the least important or anything like that. It's just that if we'd started with this one, it would probably have been all that you'd be thinking about through the other ones. I've spent quite a few hours this week reading various books and portions of books about uh, prophecy from all sorts of different angles. Um, and it does seem that it's a foundational gift. Oh, um, well, it's used in different ways in different parts of Scripture. Sorry, in some parts it's a foundational gift, so the establishment of the church, 
That's how it seems to be used in Ephesians. The prophets wrote the scriptures. Or it could be used sometimes as an infallible gift. You know, to the Old Testament, this says the Lord. Or sometimes it's used as a prediction gift, like in Agabus in chapter 11. Though the word is used for what he does isn't actually the word prophecy, which is interesting. Or it could be a miraculous gift, spontaneously foretelling the mind of God. Yet one that's not infallible and must be tested. That's what some people like Wayne Grudem and John Piper seem to take it as. Or other people just take it as another way to talk about preaching. So John Wesley and John Calvin thought that that's uh, what it was. Which seems to be a noticeable absence in the list that we're given here. There are all sorts of different options, even just within scripture, for what it could mean. If I'm honest with you, I think I'd like to spend a study week looking at it at some point. Because none of those seems to fit quite right, does it? It does seem to be used in different ways in different parts of the Bible. But whatever you take it to mean, Scripture does give us some guidance for its use. So in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 3, it says, The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So whatever it is, it's not a party trick for your own self-aggrandizement. You know, remember that a renewed mind is a humble mind. It is there, like the other gifts, to build up the church. It's also one that we're told must be used in proportion to our faith. Now that's similar to the phrase that we saw in verse 3. It's to do with not with our believing, but beliefs. Our speaking should be in line with the faith. Um, If it's, whatever it's meant by, uh, in terms of speaking, if it's more the sort of off-script speaking than teaching the Bible in verse 7, then we're not to go beyond the bounds of what has already been revealed in the faith. That's what it's saying. So we, we to do it, whatever it means, in line with what is already revealed. We can't say something that is against what we read in the Bible. And the commands given to the others, well, that was the commandment there, the sort of restrictions on it. The commands given to the other ones are just that we use them. So if you have the gift of encouragement, he says, get on and encourage. If you have the gift of serving, get on and serve. If it's teaching, teach. If it's leading, do it with zeal. Now I need to hear that as an apathetic Yorkshireman, don't I? You know, get it, get it done with zeal. If it's caring, don't do it grumblingly. Do it cheerfully. And don't we all need to hear that as folk living in Yorkshire, don't we? Not to do things grumbling. If it's giving... Well, there's no need to make the Yorkshire jokes there, is there? But generously, we're just to get on and do what we've been called to do. What struck me about this list, though, is how wonderful church would be if just these seven were happening in abundance. Forget the longer list for a moment, but just think about this. If this was happening in church, encouraging, serving, teaching, leading, caring, giving and prophesying in whatever form you take it to mean. Let yourself dream for a second. What would church be like if everyone in church was practising those seven gifts? How would our experience of church be different? 
One of our doctrinal distinctives as a church is the ministry of every believer. The first part of it says this, we believe that every believer has a responsibility to minister to other believers. Some call this every member ministry. Some call it the priesthood of all believers, but the idea is the same. We all have a role to play in ministering to each other, whether it be encouraging or serving or leading or teaching or caring. The problem is, in many churches, those things are exclusively left to the pastor or to the elder or the elders. These things are seen as the realm of the minister. And the role of the wider church is reduced to just one of those seven, giving. You know, he does the six and then we pay him to do it. So, you know, you could ask in some churches, who teaches the Bible in your church? Who does the Bible studies? Well, the minister does. Who leads your church? Well, the minister does. Who visits the sick or the bereaved? Well, the minister does. Who preaches or prophesies? The minister does. Who sets out the church building? The minister does. Who's bringing you words of encouragement? Well, the minister does. Do you think from what Paul's written here that that's how he envisages church working? One man does six out of the seven and everyone else just does one, giving. No. But that means that others have to play their part. Others have a part to play. It means you have a part to play. Well, perhaps you're thinking, well, I don't know if I have any gifts. But what are these gifts anyway? The Bible calls us to do at least five of the seven, just as general believers. But apart from leading, apart from leading in church and maybe prophecy, all these things are normal things that normal Christians do. So what does it mean then to have a gift in a particular area? Well, two things. One, the Spirit has given me the means. And two, the Spirit has given me the opportunity. All of us are to do these things, but sometimes we have more means and opportunity. So in other words, can I do it well? And is there a need for me to do it in the body now? So think about the gift of giving. Has the Spirit given me the means to do it? Do I have ample resources given to me by God to use? Has he moved my heart to give it? If yes, then is there a particular need in church for me to do that now? If yes, then that's your gift. What about the gift of teaching? Has the Spirit equipped you to be good at teaching the word? Or could I learn to do it better, perhaps with the help of others? If yes, then are there opportunities for me to teach at church? If yes, then that's your gift. Just one more. What about the gift of practical ministry? Can I set out a chair? If not, can I learn? If yes, is there a need for people to sit down at church? Well, not at the moment, apart from the three I can see in front of me. At the moment, that's not your gift, setting out chairs. But could May look at it again? Can I set out a chair? Yes. Do people need to sit down? Well, yes, unless we're all going to stand through the whole meeting. Now that then could possibly be your gift. Now that might sound like a pretty crummy gift. But they're not gifts for us, for us to feel amazing and to look amazing. They're gifts given for the body. And as Paul says elsewhere, the gifts you think of as least are often the most essential. 
there are no chairs, then we would be standing all the way through the meeting. That would not be good for some people. If Lewis, my son, didn't make me a coffee just before the meeting on a Sunday morning, my throat would probably dry up halfway through the morning. If you hadn't said that little word of encouragement to someone, perhaps that person would have given up on their walk with Christ or would have really struggled that week. If you hadn't taken out the rubbish, perhaps the building would get rats and we'd have to close down. Not all gifts are grand and glorious. That's not what they're there for. That's why Paul speaks about humility to start with. Because it's about serving, not about looking good. There's no hierarchy in church. There are no pleb jobs and plum jobs. They're just jobs, gifts, roles. And all of them have value. All of us have value. All of us have purpose and meaning as part of the body. And that is where we find our place in life. Amazingly, Paul tells us, the first place that he goes to is church. That's how we begin to see ourselves rightly as part of the body. Sorry, how we begin to see ourselves rightly as part of the body. Serving the body for the good of the body and the glory of Christ. So who am I? Where do I fit in? What's my purpose? What's my role? Well, the answer so far, I'm a living sacrifice who lays down his life for God by laying down his life for his brothers and sisters in Christ. I find my identity as part of the body where I belong to the others and they belong to me and I serve them to build up the body. More to follow next week, but let's pray that God would give us the strength to do what he's revealed to us so far. And that he grant us the humility to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ for his glory. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the gift of church. Father, thank you that it's not some multinational corporation or something like that. Father, thank you that it's a family where we belong to each other. Father, thank you that it's a body where we all have a part to play. Father, keep us from false humility that would keep us from serving that help us to understand ourselves rightly. Keep us from pride that would keep us from serving, thinking that we're above things. But pray that we might see ourselves rightly with sober judgment, with sound thinking, that you might get the glory and that we might serve you rightly as living sacrifices. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.